All right. So this is the audit room on Clubhouse. I am Trent Russell, your co-host and moderator. I'm the founder of Green Skies Analytics, where we do all things internal audit analytics. Also host of the audit podcast, which this will be um, played through as well. And today we're talking about the sexiness of ethics. But before we get to that, I'll throw it to uh, my co-host, Tracy Marquardt. Hi, everybody. This is Tracy Marquardt, Europe's leading audit communication consultant. And I work with audit clients on communication and leadership, um, which ends up in greater productivity, which is always a fantastic thing. And I'm really excited today that Joe is here. Joe, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you first to Trent and Tracy for having me, for inviting me. And we were just talking about how excellent this title is. So thank you for coming up with that. Uh, my name's Amanda Joe Irvin. It's Joe in quotes on LinkedIn. If you want to follow me, I call myself an internal audit strategist. I do a lot of work on making internal audit departments better and truly add what I call real value, because I think add value is thrown around a lot these days. Uh, and then I'm an ethics and culture consultant and a trainer, mostly on all things audit and ethics. So really happy to be here to talk about how ethics is sexy today. And the thing that, uh, Joe, I want to start off with a story. I know I've seen your sessions live before the pandemic hit. And you kicked it off with this story about basically how you've been this ethical or this ethics person since basically you were a little girl. So I wanted to see if you could share that story with us. Sure, I'd love to. Um, you know, I, I always start by saying, you know, a lot of us have brothers and sisters. Not all of you have, may have older brothers and sisters like I do, uh, but I have one of each. And they're, when I say they're older, I mean, they're a lot older than me. So I like to tell a story about how my sister, when she was 16, I was three and I loved my big sister to the point of, I used to try to sneak in her room at night uh, to spend more time with her. And unfortunately, my sister may have been going through a phase when she was 16 and she would sneak out of the house. So of course, I felt like it was my duty to run and tell my parents that she wasn't there. And then I've got this older brother. He's 12 years older than me. And he used to try to lift like that $20 bill out of my mom's purse. And I always thought I used to felt like I felt like it was my duty to run and tell my mom. Now, my brother, older brother is a uh, Wall Street trader now. So we'll just leave that there. But anyway. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, my last example is just those teachers at school. If I saw anybody cheating, of course, I felt like it was my duty to tell the teachers. And, you know, I, I always pause for effect and say, can you guys believe that people used to call me a tattletale back then? And I always say I really prefer to think of myself as a very short whistleblower back then. So that's always I always say that's my best joke so if I don't get people to at least giggle at the beginning of my ethics presentations I'm uh I set the bar there that's the second time I've heard it and I've giggled both times so I think it's a good joke <laughs> I I have to jump in I think that's hilarious I was giggling here and I had um I have a sister who used to sneak out um, at night as well and I I would sleep by the back door waiting for her to come home so I totally get it <laughs> I love it. I love it. Everybody's got a story about siblings, I think. So, 
So what is so with that then the topic of ethics is sexy. I know Joe, you were on the uh, the audit podcast, and I think we named your episode something like interesting ethics or something like that because I don't have to get the the two hours of ethics training for my certifications, but I know a lot of people do. And whenever prior to meeting you, I would think about ethics. I would just be like, I do not want to have to hear about ethics. Like, isn't it just you just do the right thing, you know? Um, and so it, it's never been a particular interesting topic to me or a sexy topic to me prior to, again, I think that was maybe two or three years ago, Joe, that, that I saw your session, but, um, why is ethics sexy topic of the show? Ethics is sexy. So I feel like we have to ask the question, why is it sexy? <laughs> it's a great question. And when we started talking about this, it got me thinking about it. And I don't think I realized how much I talk about this without maybe saying those three words. But what I truly believe is that ethical people attract ethical people. And I think that the bottom line is if we all start thinking and acting like ethics is a sexy way of being, we can all play our part in influencing people to become more ethical. You know, I talk about blind spots in my ethics presentation. And one of those blind spots is groupthink or peer pressure. You know, we tend to go along with unethical behavior because that's the way it's always done or that's how everybody around us is behaving. But I want to, I want to shift that to a positive way of thinking about groupthink for ethics. If we can get the world to realize that ethical people attract ethical people, we can, you know, start an ethical movement. I, I was thinking about it this morning. Let's hashtag. I'm, I'm I think I'm uh, Kelly Paxton's rubbing off on me too much, but I'm like hashtag ethics is sexy. I think we could start a new trend here. I think it's perfect. Um, you, t- you, you talked about the peer pressure uh, and with ethics. And I was thinking about this when you're telling your story. So your 16 year old sister, your three, the person that you look up to, you idolize, that you certainly wouldn't want to get in trouble um, by telling on her and thinking about peer pressure. I think that's a big piece of it, even like thinking back to like when you were, you know, or when we were like in high school and and doing the right thing. And I, uh, I don't know too many people like I was trying to think of, was there anybody that I went to school with that I felt was really like that? Maybe there was one or two, but um, it seems like to be able to do that, like if we boiled down ethics uh, into maybe uh, another word, um, it would be courage or acting courageously to be able to rat out your, you know, the sister that you idolize or to uh, go against the peer pressure. Would you agree with that or could you like kind of expand on that? Am I going down the right track there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I said something recently and I, I had to write it down because, you know, so every once in a while we say something that we're like, oh, you know, I should say that more. I should, you know, I hope that catches on. And uh, what I said was this, it takes a lot of courage to point out what's wrong. That's what tattletales and whistleblowers do. They point out what's wrong and speak up for what is right. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Trent, because it it is about courage. Um, And in fact, it's why I dedicated my ethics book, Becoming the Everyday Ethicist. Um, I, I say this book is dedicated to every whistleblower and tattletale out there. Thank you for speaking up. Ethics do matter. Character matters. And so, you know, I think it's, I truly believe we all have the ability to choose 
impeccable character. And, um, you know, it's a choice. We, we wake up and we can make that choice every day. Uh, and that's why I call it everyday ethics that I talk about. So, um, yeah, but I, bottom line, you, you really hit the nail there. It's not easy to do it. Hey, can I jump in for a sec? Um, we talk about courage. I think it does take courage. And I'm just wondering what are the risks that people face when they do step up? Well, um, you know, I think the one thing I worry about from knowing whistleblowers, being a whistleblower, um, more than anything is making sure they focus on their mental health. I think it's really important because, um, you know, you, you cannot, uh, you have to believe in your values and have such strong personal values that you never doubt yourself. And that is really, really probably the hardest thing. I think when I see uh, whistleblowers facing retaliation and um, kind of public displays of, of um you know, just hurtful actions towards them. Um, I just, you know, I, I preach a lot about, you know, embracing adversity that we face, but part of that is, is really figuring out how to work on your mental health, you know, talk to those, uh, advocates in your life that can help you. And, um, but, but I think bottom line is I really do feel like, and I know Robert Barry and I have had this conversation before, if you have that personal value system, that ethical mantra that you live by, it is easier to speak up. You've just got to make that a solid part of your foundation. Um, but I know I make it sound easy and I know, I know it's not. The, the mental health side, I did not think of that. I know I've read articles about whistleblowers and like the, the blowback from what happens to them. Um, and we're all probably familiar with like whistleblower hotlines where you can call and do your whistleblowing. But is there like a, uh, and this is live, so sorry to put you on the spot, Joe. We didn't talk about this earlier, but do you know if there's like a community of whistleblowers that um, can talk to each other? You know, that's always a big part, whether it's, you know, I have um, uh, cancer or something like that, but there's communities where people can talk to other other cancer survivors or other ca cancer patients and, and um, you know, heal themselves mentally from being able to connect and understand what and empathize with other people are going through. Do you know if something like that exists? You know, I don't um, specifically. Kelly Paxson would probably be a great resource to know more about that. Sure, one of her favorite hashtags is whistleblowers are heroes. And I know that there are a few podcasts out there. Um, and Kelly in particular has interviewed a few whistleblowers. And I think, I imagine there is a network somehow, um, but I don't, I don't know the answer to that fully, Trent. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious if, if anyone had, you know, anyone listening is gets in the position of where they need to be a whistleblower, then I think it'd be nice to have that to fall back on to go, okay, I know I'm going to have this support group behind me um, once all the kind of the dust settles. But anyway, um, so you've mentioned Rob, you've mentioned Kelly, um, you mentioned fraud a couple times. I know the three of you do a LinkedIn Live every Friday, I think at 2 Central Standard Time. Could you just kind of talk us through that, what you guys are talking about uh, every Friday? Sure. sure. Yeah, we do. Um, it's called Friday Fraudsters. It's friends talking about fraud on Fridays. That's what uh, Robert always says. We really dive into real world, real news stories. Um, I love some of the ones we come up with because they are 
things that you don't realize are happening around you every day. So from telemedicine fraud in our new world where we've all had this virtual doctor's appointments lately um, to nonprofits that we donate to and some of the frauds that they face, you know, our dental offices, our governments, police officers that are, are faking overtime. You know, we, we have talked about just about everything. And we talk about the big cases too, like Wirecard was one of our uh, big ones. We talked about the German FinTech company. I know Trace is familiar with that fraud, uh, but we talk just in a wide range of stories. And what I love about the three of us is we all come at it from a very different way. Kelly's got such great investigative background when it comes to fraud and embezzlement. Her book on uh, pink collar crime is excellent. And then, you know, Rob's that audit guy, right? So he's always looking for those controls. Where did they fail? Where could we have used data analytics in the process? Um, and I just, I love to dissect behavior of people and then unethical behavior uh, in all in all the frauds. So we, we come at it from three different angles, then it's a lot of fun. And we're on episode, I think, 22 this week, this Friday. We've been doing it every Friday since March. So join us. I'm going to jump in and say, I think it's a, a great program that you do on LinkedIn. I don't get to, you know, listen in that often because of my time zone difference. But um, I love that you're looking at the behavioral side. And does it come down to one reason why people behave unethically? Well, I think um, when I talk about character choices, and I first wrote about this in my book, Your Road, Your Choices, I think, like I said earlier, we all have choices when we wake up every day on how we want to behave. And choosing impeccable character is one of the chapters. Um, so the choice that we have, I think, is three different character choices. And the first one, unfortunately, is what I think we're seeing more and more in a society. And I actually uh, borrowed this term from David Brooks, the writer. Uh, in his book, The Road to Character, he actually calls the mentality the big me. And when it boils down uh, to it, it is really that we're all putting ourselves first. It's about self-preservation. It's about self-dealings. It's um, a lot of society today just doing what's best for them. And so I really take that concept of the big me. And in a lot of these frauds we talked about on Friday, that's what what they are. What they are. They're big me's. Now, that's not all of them, though. And I know I'm a huge fan of Dan Ariely's work and behavioral ethics and behavioral psychology. And he says there's just a few bad apples, but the rest of society is in this middle character choice, which I call the ethical rationalizer. This is where those blind spots to our ethics pop up every day. Things like groupthink, uh, leaders or authority figures. We tend to say things like, I knew it was wrong, but my boss told me to do it. So we, we rationalize our behavior. And I'd say, if I had to put a number to it, because I know Trent's the number guy, um, I would say, you know, 95% of society lives in this rationalizer uh, character choice. They wake up every day and we want to think we're ethical. But the bottom line is none of us are as ethical as we think we are. And we see a lot of those rationalizations happening in the stories that we dissect. So it goes back to the fraud triangle. Yes, there's opportunity in a lot of them, but there is a lot of, of rationalization. There's a lot of pressure, incentives in today's world uh, as well. But the rationalization and dissecting that is what I really like to do. And the third Sorry, this real quick, the third character choice is, of course, the everyday ethicist. So uh, trying to get everybody into that 
that bucket. Go ahead, Tracy. I think it's hard to be in that bucket, so I think I'm in the 95%, to be honest. Uh, but um, I, I the, when you said that, you know, the me mentality that resonates with me because of my, in my influencing without authority course, I, you know, I always talk to auditors about how to get their stakeholders to yes for the right reasons, of course. And um, I, I always say that you've, you've got to show the benefits to the person you're speaking to, because even though that's a benefit for the company, it's not necessarily as persuasive as when you make it not personal, but you make it resonate with the person who's making the decision. So I, I get that me mentality. It's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the with them, right? I, I actually just started a presentation with um, who wants to listen to that radio station, WIIFM, you know, because everybody wants to know what's in it for me. And unfortunately, um, sometimes doing the right thing uh, is the wrong what people look at is the wrong thing for them. And that's where our society gets into trouble. I want to, Joe, I wanted to, to for the 95%, um, I, I, I know you have examples of that. I think the one that I remember, and again, this was a couple of years ago, but it was like walking through the grocery store or whatever and finding a dollar versus finding 50 and what you would do with it. So I want you to tell that because you tell it much better than I do. But the reason I'm asking is for an example is because I know, I think it was in the UK, they did a survey of all, I think the only question was, are you better than the average driver? And it was something like 98% of people said they were better than the average driver, which statistically you can't be 98% can't be better than the average. Um, and so, but the, the, the takeaway there was that we all think that we are better than the average driver or that we're not an average driver. And so I think probably a lot of us are going, Oh, I'm not that 95%. So what I am and Tracy admitted it too, but um, Joe helped me with the example that you gave with the, the finding that I think it was a dollar or something like that. Um, where I went, yep, that is 100% me. And I agree. I think it is the majority. Uh, do, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Could you share that? Yeah. So I think it probably, if I had to guess, I always give an ethics quiz. And now in our virtual world, we do it as polling questions. So I get those five polling questions out of the way. Right after I tell my story about being a tattletale, I say to the audience, I want to know about your ethics. And so this is me testing ethics. And one of the questions, which I'm guessing there's, there is one about finding $50 on the ground, but there's one where it's about finding that item in your cart when you get back to your car after you've checked out that didn't get paid for. And I give a couple options. Option A is you go back in and you pay for the item. Option B is you do nothing. The big store that you're at makes enough money. Or option C is it depends. Is it a $2 item or a $200 item? And that's the one that gets people because if it's $2, it's very easy for us to say, eh, it's only $2. I'm not going to go back in. Um, if it's $200, our conscience kicks in a little bit more. And I always pose the question, does this mean that we can essentially put a dollar value to our ethics? And it really gets people to wake up a little bit. Uh, and one of my favorite things to say about the everyday ethicist is that we never compromise our integrity at any cost even if it's $2. And so I think that's probably what you're referring to, Trent. Yep. That's the one. And that's what I liked about your, your sessions are those like thought experiments where you just, you think ethics is like this black and white line. It's either wrong or it's not. 
And then you throw something like that out there and you're just like, I don't even know what ethics, I don't even know what it means anymore. You know, like I walked away from, uh, I know you do a couple of those thought experiences. Like, I don't even know what that, what, what ethics is anymore. Um, of course, as you finish the session, it made a lot more sense, but it definitely does make you think. Um, I do have a question just because fraud is just such a fun topic. Um, or interesting topic. So you, you, Joe and uh, Kelly have been doing Friday Fraudsters. I think you said you're on episode 20 something, one or two, which that has flown by. Um, of all those cases, and we can, if you want to loop in ethics somehow, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely fine. But what's like the most interesting one or your most favorite one uh, that, that you've come across? Oh my gosh, that's going to be a hard question. I actually have a document with every story that we've talked about. So I just brought it up um, to see if I could find a favorite. That's like picking your favorite child. Um, real quick though, because I think this is important for your listeners um, to, to know the difference between ethics and fraud. And so I always like to explain that, Trent. Maybe I did this on your podcast as well. But when we talk about fraud, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that all fraud is unethical, which is why all these stories are so interesting that we talked about on Friday. Um, but here's the thing with ethics is not all unethical behavior is fraud yet. And that's that rationalizer mentality. That's those little things. I don't think we would we would necessarily call ourselves fraudsters for not going back in and paying for that $2 item. Um, but this is where I think it's so important for us. And I know, you know, we're all, a lot of us on here are auditors, some way or another. Uh, ethics is how we can get in front of the fraud. You know, again, not all unethical behavior is fraud yet, but it's so important and so critical to talk about ethics even more than we talk about fraud. And I just, I love uh, explaining that. And I've done it a couple of times on, on Friday Fraudster as well. Um, oh my gosh. Okay. So favorite story. I'm looking at them right now. Um, okay. How about this? I, there was a article about charter schools, a fraud in a charter school. And I will tell you this because any of us on here that have kids, school is starting right now. So it kind of hit home with me because my son is getting ready to start uh, going to a charter school. But essentially, uh, it was about an entire fraud where they were having uh, students virtually sign up for this charter school, but they were never really enrolled. So they were just inflating their numbers, mm. uh, student numbers in order to get that state funding. So may not have been the most interesting case, but for me, again, the benefit of talking about these is that we wake up and start looking at things around us. I got on my son's school website and made sure all of the financial transparency was out there. The financials looked good, something that I probably should have done before. And so after reading that article, it made me wake up in my, my own life. So I think that was one of my favorites recently that we've done. Yeah. So if you are a charter school in the Denver area and Joe's kid is going there, you better make sure you got your shit together, right? <laughs> Go ahead, Tracy. Did you have something? Uh, no, I was, I was laughing and I just <laughs> hit the button because I thought I wanted to, to just chime in. No, I think it's a, it's a brilliant story of what happens in real life. And um, I really loved your point that not all unethical uh, see if I get this right not all an unethical behavior is fraud but it's like a pre-step have I got that right yeah that's I mean that's truly you know they say the 
the the best uh, way to prevent fraud is to talk about it. Well, you know, yes, we can. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We can talk about these frauds that have happened, and I do think that we can dissect them, figure out what went wrong, and do things better. But I think the main prevention for fraud is to talk about ethics, because unethical behavior is what's behind it all. And so it, it's about rebringing ethics as a foundation in our organizations and in each of our personal lives that is really going to make a difference. And I want to jump in. I know this is usually uh, trends line. I know I'm watching the clock. I know we're running out of time. Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is a short answer question or a long answer question, but what is audit's role related to fraud? Well, I think audit's role related to ethics is to start auditing culture. And I know that that seems now kind of a, I, you know, years ago it became a hot topic. I think now it's just something we say uh, to audit culture. I think it's a real thing we need to do. And uh, at the last organization I worked with, worked at, we started auditing culture at a micro level within our audit engagements, starting to ask questions around four categories, tone at the top, accountability, communication and challenge, and incentives, which is a huge, huge uh, piece of where we could find unethical behavior in our organizations uh, and those pressures. So we started asking those questions on individual audit engagements. And then at the macro level, we've got to start taking more responsibility for getting involved in those employee engagement surveys, getting getting involved with our HR department, knowing how those exit interviews are going, knowing when and why people leave, listening to complaints, reading Glassdoor reviews, um, you know, and then really I am a huge proponent of internal auditors starting to survey our, our customers, our auditees, our organizations, every employee from front lines to executives about things like culture questions. So I'm huge on culture surveys. Uh, I know Trent and I are going to start talking about maybe doing some culture, um, some data reviews uh, with culture, because I think it's really impactful when organizations start looking at that information. And um, I think we have a responsibility to report that to board, to our boards. Um, you know, I saw a statistic that I absolutely love, and I know this is kind of my long answer, sorry, uh, to the question, but it's, it's essentially went something like two thirds of boards, which I think it should be more, but two thirds of board members said that they know their responsibility is culture and ethics at the at the organizations uh, which they represent. But only one third admit to spending any time looking at it. And to me, that we have got auditors' role should be to close that gap uh, and make it not two-thirds, make it the whole board uh, or taking responsibility for ethics and culture. So to me, it, it's speaking up, it's talking about it, it's pointing out where there's issues and um, yeah, just having that courage at the end of the day that I see a lot of auditors lacking. Appreciate it, Joe. We are up against the clock. I've got a I do have more that I wanted to ask you, but we uh, we don't have time. So maybe we'll have you get, have you back um, or get your thoughts in some of the some of the other stuff that that uh, that we've partnered together and doing webinars and things like that. But um, so I'll just quick, Joe, you mentioned the culture analytics. And so we have developed a process around that where you take survey results across the organization those HR um, surveys and uh, through some analytics techniques are able to like actually see 
um, what the results are. It's, it's very interesting. So if, if that is a an area uh, of interest to anybody, please reach out to me, let me know, uh, and we can talk about that. I uh, would love to talk about that because, like I said, the, the results are very, very interesting. Um, but anyway, with that, uh, that's about it for today. This is the audit room on Clubhouse. I'm Trent Russell, uh, the co-host, and uh, we'll throw it. Tracy, I'll throw it to you. And then, Joe, if you want to close us out, one thing I do want you to hit on um, that I enjoy that you offer is the CPE Book Club. So, uh, Tracy, I'll throw it to you. And then, Joe, if you could close us out and uh, please speak to the CPE Book Club, because I think that's a uh, very valuable uh, service that you offer. Hey, thanks for that, Trent. Um, I want to hear about the book club again, too. So do let us know about that. Um, I just want to let everyone know I've got my uh, VIP audit reporting masterclass on Thursday this week where you can get CPE credits. And I'm also offering my audit report writing workshop as an open workshop in September. So hopefully you all can check out my LinkedIn profile. And if we're not connected on LinkedIn, please do connect with all of us here on stage. And Joe, I'll let you uh, close us off. Awesome. Well, thanks for the plug for my book club. Um, I just yesterday put on a new event. So I essentially, I always say I read the book. You don't have to. So it's not your typical book club. And then I give a presentation on the book and I give you that CPE certificate in whatever related field of study that we're talking about. Well, um, my dear friend Kelly Paxton just decided that we also need to start a CPE movie club. So we are doing a crossover event on Wednesday, September 15th at 11 a.m. Mountain Time, my time. Uh, so that would be 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And here's the title. I love the title. Unicorn or Fraud? We work dissected. So we are going to dissect the book, The Cult of We, and the We Work documentary on Hulu. We're going to essentially give you the timeline of what happened at We Work, their, their IPO failure, their unicorn valuation, and all of the mentalities and behaviors of all the investors along the way. Um, and uh, I'm just super excited about this crossover book and movie event that we'll be doing. So go to cpebookclub.com and uh, you can read all about that, that one coming up. Uh, so the book club is innovative in and of itself, the way you do it. But then this whole movie thing is fascinating to get CPE basically for watching a movie is awesome. Um, I love, fantastic. Yeah, I love that idea. Well, all right, uh, everybody, thanks for uh, joining us. Joe, thanks for coming on and being our guest. Tracy, thanks as always for co-hosting and we will see you all next week. Thanks guys. Thanks everybody. See you online.